Hello friends, my name is Ian Graham and I'm the pastor of Ecclesia in Princeton, New Jersey. And I am so excited to introduce to you this teaching series, a series that will look at the story, the big story that the Bible is telling from Genesis to Revelation, a series we're calling From Garden City. The story begins in a garden and it ends in a city and is defined at every twist and turn by the love and the presence of God. That God will stop at nothing to be God with us. And so if you've ever tried to read the Bible or you've ever been asked, what what actually is the Bible about? We hope that this teaching series will be a blessing to you. It will be an invitation to see the big story of the Bible and to see your story in light of that beautiful, gracious, life-giving, eternal story. So wherever you are, we pray this is a blessing to you. Grace and peace to you. story and you listen to the details and all the stuff that's going on you're like what is going on like the man was put to sleep and out of his side God made a woman out of his rib it's some interesting stuff and this is one of my favorite texts to sort of teach on because my suspicion is that most of us have not actually heard this passage this whole story kind of unpacked a little bit so there's a lot of fun to be had it's not on check 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 Hey, we're good. Yeah, yeah. All right, cool. Thank you very much. Uh, it saves my voice, too. I appreciate that so much. So the reality is today, we want to look at what is going on in this story because I think that this has everything to do with each and every one of our lives. Now, a little bit about me. I grew up kind of Christian adjacent. Uh, I lived in Oklahoma, which is like Bible Belt culture stuff. Like, so it's like all kind of nominally Christian, but not uh, 100% Christian as we sort of see every once in a while. Uh, you can fill in your blanks there. But for me, the, the thing that never really made sense as I was, I was in high school, I had people, I would go to church, but, but what following Jesus and what faith seemed like to me at that time in my life was basically a get out of hell free card. So the construct I had made in my head was this. God sent Jesus to save us from our sins, and that if you pray this magical prayer at some point in your life, you get to go to heaven. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, this sounds great. However, I'm a young man at this point. I'm going to go ahead and roll the dice, play the odds that I'm not going to die anytime soon. So for me, faith, following Jesus was this thing I just kind of held out at arm's length. I was like, at some point, I don't know, when I'm married or when I'm old, I'll, I'll kind of pick that up because I don't want to go to the bad place, wherever that is. And so that was the way I had constructed the narrative in my head until I met two, or actually two of my friends that had been friends for a while, began to follow Jesus in their everyday lives at our high school. And it wasn't this like incredible, drastic shift, but they just started living it out in very subtle and very kind and gracious ways. And that for me was such a category collision where I was like, okay, these, these people, these two young men, my friends Aaron and Charlie, are living this out right here and right now. 
They think this is something that has to be uh, held to right now. And so I began to sort of ask the question, okay, because if this has something to do with my everyday life, then perhaps maybe I've constructed the story poorly and I need to reevaluate. Now, what we see in Genesis chapter 2 is a continuation of what we saw in Genesis chapter 1. If you read those two stories together, it seems like there's two different accountings of the way that the world came into being. And maybe, maybe for some of you, you're in seminary and this is the first time you were like, wow, are these, like in, are, are these in competition? Are they telling different stories? Well, we're not going to look at that today, but we're going to weave them together in a way that I think is so important and so beautiful to the way that we live our everyday lives. Wendell Berry, the poet and essayist, asked this really powerful question, what are humans for? What are we here to do? And I think that today, as we look at this text, that we get a little insight into what it means to be people made in the image of God. I think we get a little insight into those things that bring us great joy. I don't know about for you, but for some of you, you just want to do something in the world. You want to explore. You want to take the things that are chaotic and put them in order. You want to make sense and meaning. You want to take words and write them down. You want to make melodies. There's something in you, and you don't know where that came from, that's a spark that just wants to make something. And I think that has everything to do with the story that Andrew just read, for, Andrew the reader just read for us. So let's turn to the text in Genesis chapter 2. We're going to unpack it slowly. As we think about this question, what, what are we for? It says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth that when they were created. In that day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And when no plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain. But a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now in Genesis 1, God is the narrator. Words create worlds. He speaks creation into existence. Let there be, and it was so, and it was good. In Genesis 2, where we find ourselves today, that voice becomes a whisper. That voice that proclaims, let there be, is so close. It is so proximal. God is again here a craftsman, but this time he's not the conductor of a symphony or a narrator, but a sculptor out of the dust of the ground. He crafted the man. And then he breathes the breath of life into his nostrils. God animates all that there is. Everything that has life is put into motion by his very breath, his word, and is sustained and upheld by that very word. Now don't miss this. The very atmosphere of our world, though we know that it's comprised of gases, that we breathe in and out is comprised of grace. God's very breath animates all that is. That blessing that breathed out that it is good and very good is the same air that meets us as we breathe in and out. Life is a gift. And every day we have a chance to receive it. And it goes on in verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. 
God makes the world. And as we saw last week, God creating the world in seven days has all the marks of God creating a temple for himself to dwell in. And now we see that this temple is not somewhere far off. It is a garden where he puts us near and close to him. Because if you wanted to define the Bible in one sentence, it's God stopping at nothing to make his home with us. And you will hear me say that over and over again, and there will be a test on it. God making his home with us. He planted a garden. God is doing the forming. Andy Crouch says this of God. He says, God begins the work of culture before he gives the work to Adam. Culture is God's creation as much as nature is. The Lord God's hands have dug into the dirt. He has touched it. He has blessed it. Everything Adam will do as a gardener will begin with what God did. Culture is God's idea. Genesis 2 verse 9, it says, Out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also is in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now this, this is such an important verse. And if you notice, it's so easy when we're listening to these words just to kind of be like, okay, weird detail, kind of skating along. You know, almost like we read on the internet. Like when you read on a screen, you don't really read. Are you aware of this? You basically read like a sentence and then you're like, okay, next paragraph, next paragraph. You're just like that scroll mentality. It's just like more, 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 more. We do this with the word of God, but so often the narrators, the writers, the Holy Spirit is just saying, slow down. Verse 9 gives us so much insight into the kind of culture. If culture is God's idea, and if it's our role as people made in his image to steward culture, this verse gives us insight into the kind of culture that God is wanting to hand off to us. Now, as the narrator of Genesis, Genesis 2 describes the garden, some very important details revolve around the trees that are in the garden. First, the first thing, and this is so, this is so good, the first tree that's in the garden is useless. It's just nice to look at. If you were touring the garden, you're walking around, hey God, what's that tree for? Nothing. It just looks nice. It's decorative. It's extravagant. It's abundant. There's nothing you can eat from this tree. The wood's not particularly good for building furniture. Nope. It's just nice to look at. And this is essential to the story as it unfolds from garden to city. Beauty, gratuitous, abundant, wasteful beauty is fundamental to being human. What does it mean to be made in God's image? What are people for? Where first we are to receive the gift and the grace of that which is beautiful and good and true. We live in an age that presses against this at every turn. We even praise Sean for his efficient announcements. Because we live in a utilitarian age. Andy Crouch, again, he says, ours is the age of the economist and the evolutionary biologist, each of whom have gotten very busy explaining why everything we thought was particularly human is actually just useful. Religion just turns out to be economically and evolutionary useful. Charity and generosity, useful. Sex, useful, merely useful. And in the realm of literary and artistic criticism, it turns out that art and literature, too, were just expressions of power and domination, useful. Music, useful. 
Once you have lost the idea that the world is a gift, that culture is a gift, that culture can be taken, blessed, broken, and given, all of it and any of it is useful. And then, eventually, this is all you can make of human beings, that they are useful. And we'll see that this is exactly the trajectory of the people of God. Eventually, they will be slaves in Egypt, and God will say to those slaves, you used to be known by what you could make, what you could produce, but I say to you, honor the Sabbath. Keep it holy, because no longer will you be known by your efficiency. No longer will you be known by what you can do, but you will be known by the fact that you are made in the image of God and that you breathe the gift of life, which is his very breath. You were not made to be merely useful. You were made to receive the gift of beauty that God has for us. Makoto Fujimura, an artist and theologian, writes, he says, Could it be that we have missed the essence of the gospel message by focusing merely on the industrial, the commoditized way to convey the information of the gospel, or even to sell the good news in the most efficient manner prescribed by our entrepreneurial or industrial mindset? We were made to receive beauty. God said it was good in the beginning, and this is our call still. The second tree that's giving us a vision of the kind of culture we're called to steward. There are trees that are good for food. Amen. Amen. Trees that are a gift to sustain us, to bring us nourishment. And I love the people that mix the first two trees together. The trees that were made for beauty and the, the, the food that is really good, just merging those two together. And you sit down to a beautiful meal. I was able to sit down to a lovely meal with my daughter last night. And it was more about the company than the food. But the food was a gift. But there are trees that are good for food. Food is, of course, something that we all need. Some of you are thinking about it right now. And I've got about another hour. So just keep letting those. In the Garden of Shalom, in the culture that we are called to steward, don't miss this, everybody has enough to eat. There are trees that are good for food, that God has made a world that produces and provides. And many economists and you know, agrarian scientists have noticed that the world is providing enough, even for the expanded population that is in the world. The problem is in the distribution. The problem is in the stewardship of the culture. God's good world is enough to provide and to sustain. But the second tree tells us, and this, as we extrapolate this out, when everybody has enough to eat, there is shalom, there is justice. And so the second tree shows us that we were made to receive God's justice, that there would be enough to eat. So beauty and justice, the kind of culture that God is calling us to steward. The third tree, the tree of life. This tree will serve as a major theme of the biblical story and also an incredible Terrence Malick movie, if you get the time. But it represents eternal life, God's life, that he grants graciously to us. We were made for eternity. But it is not an eternity that we can grasp on our own. We can't build our own legacy. You see this? in people trying to make a name for themselves. No, we were made for eternity, and that is something that is an aching longing in our souls, but it is only a gift, the gift of the tree of life. And we'll see as the story moves along that this 
is one of the ways that we incur punishment, one of the ways that we incur disruption in the shalom that God has given us. But the third tree, the tree of life that God has made us to be with him forever. And the fourth tree is the tree of limitation. Last week we talked about the hierarchy that is woven into creation. That God, the creator, is at the top. That we made in his image, male and female in his image, are next. And that we are called to steward in loving cultivation the creation that God has given us. But there is a hierarchy. And God says in verse 15, he says, The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You may freely eat of every tree in the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. Now notice this. Notice the discrepancy between the permission and the prohibition. Notice God says, all of these trees are for you. But not this one. It's just not good for you. Why? I have no idea. People have speculated endlessly about what is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And anybody who's telling you they know what it is, is lying to you. Because we have no idea. But God says, it's not good for you to eat of this tree. There's a limit placed on being human. And that just as receiving the gift of the good tree of beauty, just as receiving the gift of the tree of justice and the tree of life, it is a gift to receive our limits of being human. It's not that God places the object of our temptation in the middle of the garden in order to tempt us. Now, I'm a father of four kids. I promise you, I never put something in my kid's room and be like, huh, we'll see what they do with this. <laughs> Nanny cam, weirdo. Like, my word, right? Like, God is, this is not who God is. Like, okay, let's, let's tempt them. Let's tease them. This is not what God is doing. God introduces the tree. You are free. All I have is yours. Sounds like the, the father saying that to his older son. So why would God put a tree there in the middle of the garden that we're not supposed to eat from? Welcome to Philosophy 101. Well, listen, there's a ton that we could speculate here. We just don't have the time to go into all of it. But I would summarize the presence of this tree by simply saying, it's a gift to receive our limits. We have limits on our power and limits on our authority. We receive the harmony of the hierarchy we saw last week. Now, for so many of us, one of the ways that we see these limits that are often pulling on us is when I get on the internet and I see all of the terrible things that are happening in the world, anybody else ever just feel a little bit overwhelmed? Like, I, I sometimes see all that's going on, whether it be locally, whether it be globally, and I'm just like, oh my gosh, God, what, what do we even begin to do? And it begins to move my heart to despair. And I think this is one of the ways, like the internet is almost like the omniscience of God. We can sort of know everything that's going on without any agency to do anything about it other than like tweet about it. And I think sometimes this is one of those ways where we see just kind of this convergence of our limitations. And we're like, oh my gosh, like this is moving my heart to despair. And I think so often we think that we should be able to tra traverse every limit. And I think God is sometimes saying to us, just rest. Receive the gift of limits. God is not putting the tree there to test or to tease us, but to be human is simply to have limits. And to love God is to freely choose to love Him. 
If there was no tree of the knowledge of good and evil, could we choose him in any way? Could we choose to respond to him? I don't know. Philosophers, theologians through the ages have pondered this mystery. And I encourage you to ponder it as well. The tree is there not because God is the author of temptation or evil. Far from it. And friends, this is so important to me today. If you have endured hardship in your life, whether it be random catastrophe, whether it be somebody doing something to you, this is not saying that God did this to you. This is not saying that God puts every tree of evil and brokenness in our midst and lets them unfold as they will. What we find is that the story says something quite different. And we'll see this today. But as God is enduring the brokenness that we so often introduce to the shalom of his creation, God does not leave us or forsake us. He is with us every step of the way, working and weaving even the most horrid and horrible experiences that we go through for his glory and good. And he will not leave you. And if you hear nothing else today, I hope you hear that. Beauty, justice, life, and limits. This is the culture that God hands to us to steward. This is God's idea. What a good world it is. And Genesis 2 gives us some more of those details that we would so easily skate by. Verse 10, it says, A river flows out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divides and becomes four branches. The name of the first is Pashan, then there's the Havilah. And the gold of that land is good, bdellium and onyx stone. The name of the second river is Gihon. The third is the Tigris, and the fourth is the Euphrates. Now, if you crushed it in like third grade geography, Tigris and Euphrates, you're like, fertile crescent, boom, I got it. You don't know where those other rivers are, and nobody else does either. But this is one of those points in the Bible where you're just like, why is this in here? What's the point? Just telling us geographically where it's located? Well, I think there's a little bit going on. These details may seem ancillary, but remember, the original authors of the scripture did not have word processors. You know, they weren't just endlessly hitting backspace if they typed something they didn't like. They had to be very careful with what they put on paper because the paper was not an abundant resource at this time. And so one of the rules that we apply when we read the text is this, no unnecessary details. Okay, so why are they telling us about rivers and gold and bdellium and onyx? Well, first, it's this beautiful image. The major rivers that feed all of civilization and life at this time in the known world flow out of this garden. All of the kingdoms and empires of the world are fed and sustained by the true king that is God, the creator of the universe. It is all upheld by him. Second, the metals listed are more remarkable for their beauty than for their usefulness. As Mako uh, Fujimura points out again, all of them have to be excavated, unearthed. They all have to be explored for. And I wonder, for how many of us, like the idea of a good day is exploring creation, is seeing what we can do with it. If those of you who are scientists, gold is a metal that has to be experimented with at some level. It's actually a super efficient conductor of electricity. But we would not have known that just by staring at it. It's beautiful to look at. But perhaps God is calling, to take, uh, calling us to take this creation that he has made and to do something with it. We are all caretakers of culture. In the vocations that we do and the stuff we get paid for, that's, that's all part of this. 
but also the stuff that we love. How many of you just want to take words and arrange them in such a way that it helps us to see the world in a new light? We need you. This is the world that God has called you to steward. How many of you just like to organize things? Like if somebody were to walk into your room, they would be like, wow, somebody with some severe uh, case of wanting to have things in the right place. You just want to do that. And let me just say, as somebody who's deeply disorganized, we need you. Thank you. Bringing order to chaos. How many of you just want to write songs for the church to sing, for people to see, and not even just the church? Jesus didn't die for any songs. Art has this way of helping shine the world in a new light. And I think what the garden is telling us is that all of it, all of God's good world when received as a gift, can be stewarded for beauty and for justice and maybe even for eternity. God tasks Adam then with naming the animals. Naming is this intimate practice. For each of our kids, we, we prayed, we labored over what would this child be called? How would they, just by their existence, testify to God's grace and creation? Naming is an intimate practice. It's Adam stepping into the vocation that he was called to have dominion, careful cultivation, stewardship over creation. Lisa Sharon Harper says the naming process involves the other deeply enough to properly see, knowing the other, excuse me, deeply enough to properly see, identify, and name both the other and the self. Humanity entered into relationship with the rest of creation and discovered their names. And through that process, humanity became more acquainted with the self. And the process clarified for Adam that there was no companion of humankind to be discovered. The first thing that is not good in the scriptures is that Adam is alone. Let's look in verse 20. The man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air. And this, this I mean, just for one second, this kills me. Because there's so many times where, again, as a parent, like, I do stuff with my kids, and I'm just like, oh, tell me what you think about that. And they say something awesome, and I'm just like, yes, that is so not, not what the point of that was. But how beautiful, how good, and I can just see God, just be like, hey, Adam, what's that, what's that thing that hops along called? He's like, oh, yeah, kangaroo. And God's just like, yeah, yeah, right, because they spoke English, but, you know. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And as he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, this one shall be called woman. For out of this man, this one was taken. The first thing that is not good in the story of the scriptures thus far is that man is alone. So the text tells us that God causes a deep sleep to overcome the man and makes a woman out of one of his ribs. Now, this is strange. I don't have some scientific explanation. Women, I don't think your ribs just bullsed up. But the word for helper here, which much mischief has been made of, is the word in Hebrew, ezer konegda. And there's so much more that we could go into, and there'll be a time for that. Let me just say a couple things. The word azer means helper, but not in the way that I let my kids help me in the garage. You know, like, oh, come along, you can, you can help me. <laughs> no. The word azer, at the other times it is used, is describing God as helper. 
God is saving helper. There's something intuitive to the reality of the woman that they are a partner and a co-creator with the man as we've seen him naming and working alongside God. There is no hierarchy placed on this particular term. And you'll notice when our dear brother Zechariah opens Genesis 3 for us next week, that the hierarchy only comes as a response and a result of the fall and the curse. In the shalom of the garden, man and woman are called to co-create together, each contributing their part. This is what it means to be made in the image of God. There is no subordination built into the creational fabric. And in fact, that sense of subordination is only seen in Genesis 3, where we get the unraveling of the shalom. And it's an important function of good writing that the first character, or the first word that a character speaks, if you're reading something that is literary in nature, the first word that a character speaks is meant to show you something about their life, their destiny, the way they see the world. God's first words, let there be light. God is the creator, the sustainer, the giver of every good gift. And when the man beholds the goodness of God manifested in the woman, what does he do? He breaks into song. At last. If you notice, if you have a paper Bible in front of you, those words are indented, meant to call us and say, hey, this is poetry, slow down. At last. Bone of my bone. His first word, the first word of humanity in the scriptures is praise and blessing. Praise to the God who is the giver of every good gift, who could imagine something so incredible as woman. And blessing over the woman, receiving the gift of who she is. Our native tongue, as people made in the image of God, as his daughters and sons, are these worship and blessing at last. This is who we were called to be. And in Genesis 1, the call is to be stewards, co-creators, to establish dominion and rule. And in Genesis 2, we see the setting for this call, the garden. What are humans for? Are you beginning to get a glimpse? Humans are for stewarding the culture that was God's idea that he created, for making earth look like heaven, because in the beginning and in the end, there is no distinction between the two, but there is a marriage of the two. The Bible begins with a wedding, at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, for this reason a man shall leave his mother and father, and it ends with a wedding. Look, see, the home of God is among mortals, Revelation 21. Our call as people made in the image of God is to be co-creators within the hierarchy that is, in, that is woven into the architecture of this world. Creator, creator's image, and creation. But as we will see, and as all of us could point to in our own lives, our own experiences, and know, so often instead of stewarding God's good creation, instead of glorifying the creator, we try to use creation to subvert the creator. Humans were called to be makers, cultivating beauty, justice within the limits that God has established for us. But instead, we choose the ways that are contrary to the ways that God has put over us. Instead, our sin makes ugliness and domination the norm. Instead of making the good beautiful and true, we weave sad garments of figs and leaves to try and cover our shame. God handed us his world of shalom and he 
placed himself right in the middle of it. And he said, I'm going to help you steward this. But instead of responding to that call, we made things. We made objects of shame. The end of of Genesis chapter 2 says they were naked and they knew no shame. But as we'll see, and Zechariah is going to unpack for us next week, Genesis 3, we see that the man and the woman are aware of their shame and they try to hide it. Instead of taking the God-given call to make beauty and justice and eternity, they take their God-given call and are making objects to hide their shame. And the cross of Jesus stands as the worst failure of imagination of human culture. An object of humiliation, of torture, of cursing, an agent of empire meant to terrorize. Jesus takes the worst that we can do, the worst that we can make as we try to circumvent and traverse the ways of God. And he employs it for his good purposes. Jesus takes our works of anti-culture and because of the great love of God fashions out of it an instrument of redemption and blessing. And then it says, as Jesus dies on the cross on that Good Friday and on Easter Sunday morning, he is risen again. There's a woman that's gone to the tomb to look for Jesus. And it says in John chapter 20, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? And then notice what John says here. Supposing him to be the gardener, The what? Whom are you looking for? The narrator says, supposing him to be the gardener. She said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus, the risen Christ, said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabbi, Mary is looking for Jesus. She wants to go honor him at his tomb. And Jesus meets her, but she doesn't know it's Jesus yet. She thinks he's the gardener. John is one of those not-so-subtle geniuses. Where did the story begin? In a garden. Where's the resurrected Christ walking? In the garden. Perhaps what John is inviting us to see as we sort of weave this together is that Jesus' resurrection is a renewed call a renewed sense for us to be people of this new creation, that though we marred the first creation with rebellion, though we, it was defined by shame, Jesus is inviting us into the life of his new creation. On the cross, Jesus takes away all the ways that we have chosen against the ways of life, that we have participated in the ways of death. Jesus' resurrection restores our humanity restores the call to steward the goodness of this world, restores to us the ways of beauty, of justice, of limits, and eternity. We receive his life and we receive his renewed call to be cultivators, stewards of the new creation. I'm going to invite the worship team up. N.T. Wright says it this way. And if the question for us is what What is all this story that we're reading about, this Genesis 1 and 2, with all this weird stuff about people being taken out of ribs and stuff? What does it have to do with my life? Jesus is saying that there is a new creation that is broken out right in the midst of this one. And that same call to be cultivators of the good shalom that God has given us has been renewed and sounded again. And N.T. Wright says, the point of the resurrection is that the present bodily bodily life is not valueless just because it will die. 
What you do with your body in the present matters. Because God has a great future in store for it. What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sowing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself, will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable, until the day when we leave it all behind, as the hymn so mistakenly puts it. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. What are humans for? We are called to be stewards of the goodness of God. Shalom is a vision of a kingdom that provides for all, says Lisa Sharon Harper. And friends, today, I hope that if you walked in here and you're just trying to make sense of it all, that you have some sense that what you do between Monday and Saturday has all the significance of the sacred, has all the call to the holiness of God. And I also want you to see that the man and the woman in this place of shalom knew no shame. And when Jesus comes to restore the world, when he comes to restore in flesh and blood what it means to be human, he comes to remove our shame. And today, for so many of us, whether it is something that we have done or something we're experiencing, we are hiding from God. Either we're holding on to the thing that we are going through and saying, I got this, God, just I'll, I'll see you on the other side of this. Or we're so ashamed of what we've done that we, we think that God has nothing to do with us. But God's call to restore shalom is Him meeting us, Him weaving garments of praise, of beauty, of justice for us. And he accomplishes all of this on the cross. So Ecclesia, as we move to a time of worship, as we move to a time of communion, we're going to invite you just to reflect upon how God is wanting to meet you here, to call you anew, to be a co-creator, a witness, and a steward of the goodness of God, and also to receive the grace of his life. On the night before he suffers, the worst that wayward human culture can do, this is what Jesus does. He takes bread and wine into his hands, and he lifts them up and he blesses them. Bread and wine, not wheat and grapes. Bread and wine are culture, not just nature. They are good for food and a delight to the eyes. Jesus takes culture, blesses it, breaks it, and gives it to his friends. Taken, broken, blessed, and given these cultural goods, these creatures of bread and wine, as the old prayer book had it, become sign and presence of God in the world. And Ecclesia, I pray that today, that if you are hiding in shame, if you are experiencing the effects of anti-culture, of failure, of brokenness, that you will see that God is coming to meet you. And I pray that if you're just trying to make sense of it all, that you have some sense that God has called you to be a steward of this good world. Let us pray that we're going to respond in worship.